Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hello and welcome to another beautiful autumnal day. This one being October 22nd, 2020. Uh, so, um, the Republicans have done what they said they were going to do. The just bold and bald abuse of the power that they hold. And today, the Judiciary Committee of the Senate this morning uh, met as per the Constitution of the United States, to sign off on the president's nominee for the Supreme Court of the United States. This, as the clock ticks toward an election that will, if the polls are right this time, take the president who made that nomination, and kick him out the door. So the Republicans met. The Democrats didn't bother attending. The Republicans met, and lo and behold, uh, unanimously approved Amy Coney Barrett for the Supreme Court of the United States for a lifetime tenure. And on Monday, Mitch McConnell, the architect of the court packing scheme that has gone on again, baldly, boldly, right under our eyes for more than four years, will have the cherry on top they could only dream about. And they will install on Monday morning, one week before the election, Amy Coney Barrett on the court to fill the seat held by the incomparable Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So that's Republicans. That's how they operate. The same people who said it was unseemly to allow Barack Obama a year before the end of his presidency to put someone on the Supreme Court. One week before, and they know it. One week before what could be, we should only pray, a repudiation of their party. This is their last gift to us. Consider it a middle finger. And then on the other side of the aisle, <clears throat> there's, of course, Joe Biden, who uh, apparently, uh, when asked for this 60 Minutes interview that will air on Sunday, what he would do about court packing, would he remedy what the Republicans have done? by doing something equally outrageous, not unconstitutional, but bald, bold politics. Would he increase the size of the court? And because Biden is a Democrat and not a Republican, Apparently, he 
Demurred, is that how it's pronounced? And he said something about, well, and we'll uh, appoint a commission. (laughs) Appointing a commission is a way of making something just go away. We don't do this thing called politics in the same way. And Democrats are often uh, disadvantaged, to say the least, because we just do not play hardball. I personally don't know what the right thing to do is. I do know that this, what will be in in just a few more days, a 6-3 court. Is going to wreak havoc with anything a Democratic Congress and a Democratic executive might try to do to get this country back on track. That I know. And hmm, I came upon this a few days ago and then I saw it in print. Um, in today's New York Times, and I, and I think it's something that's really worthy of our note, and that is a piece by, let's see, who are these people? Associate Professors of Political Science at uh, Stony Brook University. Anyway, they, they are, have written a book. Who the hell hasn't, by the way? Um, me, but it seems like everybody else has. They have written a book about uh, polarization in American politics and disengagement in American politics. And I think uh, what they found is uh, undoubtedly true, and I think it's something that you and I need to remember. Essentially, what they found, and this is from research and all kinds of, you know, studies, most Americans, by far, most Americans, we're talking 80 to 85 percent of Americans follow politics casually or not at all. Which puts you (laughs) and me in a minority making up just 15 to 20 percent of the American electorate. And we have a skewed view because it is that 15 to 20 percent of people highly engaged, following the news. And who do reporters go to when they want, you know, I don't know, um, a soundbite, a point of view? Who does CNN and Fox and MSNBC and all the others populate their 24-7 coverage with? representatives of that 15 to 20 percent of Americans, the partisans, the people who watch. And what ends up happening is their point of view, be it on CNN or be it on Twitter or social media, become, well, they stand in for what people are thinking. 
Americans feel, Americans this, and it is a not representative group at all. So what this very partisan, vocal minority, represented by me, you probably, what we put out, what we're squawking and screaming about, we have to remember is not the shared opinion of the majority, vast majority of American people who frankly don't pay attention. I know it's hard for people like us to believe that. I'm always stunned when I'm talking to somebody and often educated people. I mean, I've talked to people with like graduate degrees and I'll say something just assuming of course, that they're up to speed on what's happening. And I'll get an unapologetic, you know, I just don't pay attention response. And it always astonishes me because I think it's their responsibility to pay attention. That's what I was taught in my home, that we are members of a community, and it behooves us. It's one of my dad's favorite words, behooves. It behooves us to be a responsible member of our community, which means to pay attention. But 80 to 85% of Americans didn't have my dad as a father, and they didn't know from behooves. And here's a, two lines from this piece, and this is what I had seen earlier in the week. And it's so true, and we need to remember it. For partisans, like you and me, politics is the Morality play, a struggle of good versus evil. But most Americans just see two angry groups of people bickering over issues that may not always seem pressing or important or frankly of any interest. That's a hard reality to take in because, to my mind, it's dispiriting. So even in this most unusual election in which a whole bunch of those 80 to 85 percent of people have finally sort of woken up a little bit, and I probably we have to thank the pandemic, woken up to the, you know, at least to say, oh, maybe I should vote. But I think we need to remember this. So our perceived sense of what's happening (laughs) And where our fellow Americans stand and what they care about is, I think, off. This piece ends this way. Each day, partisan Democrats wonder whether the latest outrage will finally change how people feel about the president. Well, we've seen how that goes, right? doesn't change anything. And the piece these these authors say, you see, most regular Americans, most regular voters, that's not us, are not paying 
that much attention to the daily onslaught, to the outrage du jour. And you know why? Because it turns them off. And that's not just a phrase. They have turned off. My ranting and raving, your ranting and raving is so much noise to them and they're sick of it. And every once in a while when a major scandal breaks through into their consciousness, what these authors say is these people often just shrug and say, hmm, that's politics. Tell me that doesn't sound like a a proper reading, probably, of the disengaged America, the disengaged American. Uh, Amy tells me that we have a caller. Caller, go ahead, please. Hey, Lynn, it's Mike. Hey, Mike. Sorry for calling two days in a row. That's okay. But this is my favorite topic. So there are lots of people in my life who do not pay attention to politics. And I'll say something. And like you said, they have these pat phrases they say, without shame. Oh, I don't follow politics. They're all the same, whatever. Yeah, right. And I have pat phrases back to them. What a shame. Because it's the most interesting thing there is. It's way more interesting than the Steelers. And these people I'm talking about will know everything about a quarterback, but nothing about the man who will lock babies up in cages. And there are 345 parents or kids that can't even link to the parents they took away from at the border. Uh, You know, so I don't understand at all. This isn't just my civic duty. This is also way more interesting and Rothenberger's elbow, or how far he can throw a ball. But you know what it, but Mike, what it is, is football and all of the drama that goes along with that is something that is containable. It is understandable. It's neat. And what you're suggesting is more interesting is chaos and uncertainty and sort of, frankly, frightening. And there's not a time limit and there's no blowing the whistle and there's not commercials and it just doesn't seem quite the same. It's not as it's not as easy. It doesn't make me feel dumb. Football doesn't make me feel dumb. In sports and politics makes people feel dumb because you have to read up and you have to know the difference and you have to know when I say locked babies up in cages, what that means. But I'm not reading that. I'm reading about Rothenberger and all these ridiculous made up things and that literally affect my, do not affect my life at all. I have not seen a Steeler game in 40 years. Since I was forced to as reparative therapy. And guess what? I'm so successful in my world. But people who follow sports but don't follow politics, their lives would be so much better if they would follow politics. If they would pay attention to that. Yeah. But it's not as satisfying. Says who? Huh? Says, Says me. who? It's not as simple. It's, it's, people want – football is 60 minutes, albeit, uh, you, know, uh, you know, dragged out to, you know, three hours. It, it's 60 minutes where there's these specific rules and, and immediate, uh, you know, punishment for infraction, and somebody wins and somebody loses, and it's all clear cut. That is something that people – I don't know. It's 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 
primitive brain stuff, and it's it it's satisfying. Yeah, and people try and force politics into that. And they're Republicans because they've always been Republicans, like they're Steeler fans because they've always been Steeler fans. With no rationale well, to what your, I mean, what their party does. Well, in that regard, you know, if you identify strongly with a party, um, it is somewhat like being a a football fan of a specific team. It's you take on that team, you wear their colors, (laughs) you care mightily about them. And I think that's a human need, right, to feel like you belong to some kind of a group. Um, Tribe. A tribe. You wear the colors. Remember when we we were appalled when we learned the gangs had different colors, and if you wore the wrong colors, I mean, I, I, we all do it. Look at any Sunday, uh, you know. Look at the America, you know, in their gangs, wearing their colors. It must be a very basic human need, and I'm not putting it down. I mean, I. I readily, uh, unlike you, I, I get into that, but I also can get into something a little more important and a little more chaotic and a little more, a lot more consequential. Exactly. I think people are lazy. They don't have time. They'll yes. say, I don't have time. Well, you know, but they have time to, you know, know this you know every baseball stat on their right. you know on every, but it it's a it's a matter of choice and what you're um comfortable with and people don't like to be challenged they have to work at their yeah. own expense right yeah yeah but that's the part they're not getting and i don't know how you ever get it through to them i i don't know People just don't understand how all of this, that that bigger game they're not paying attention to, has direct impact on their lives and, in fact, on their deaths. Ask the families of the 220,000-plus. I read this article yesterday, and it said that the reason that poor people are so disenfranchised from voting to use poor people a large segment are disenfranchised from voting is because the way in which they access um, public services has never been easy for them they've always been treated badly shamed with you know um, Mm -hmm. uh, food cards and all that stuff that they their experience with government has been worse than someone middle class or rich. So they're less likely to be engaged than middle class and rich. And that would also bolster our, what we're saying right now is that if you already have a bad experience with government from being shamed from, for whatever reason, then you're less likely to be engaged and more likely to be engaged in sports because there is no negative outcome from there. Even when you lose a game, you're around other people who've lost, and you're talking about how you were robbed or uh, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So the solution well, was to make those experiences yeah. less difficult. Yeah. Um, but that's not going to happen when half of the half the second party in America believes that the poor that there should be no government. And that the poor are poor let, because they lack, they lack the grit necessary to pull themselves up by their, I don't know, you know, the myths that we believe, again, because they're, they let us off the hook often. I don't know. I don't know. It's like a child. You yeah, well, of course. You don't explain to a child. You say two fingers plus two fingers or one bunny ear and another bunny ear. It's really like children. Yeah. All right, you. Okay. Thank you. I won't call tomorrow, I promise. <laughs> There's no show tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> That's why I won't call. All righty. Goodbye, okay. you. Have a good weekend. Bye. You too. Bye-bye.
Chuck writes, just like your father impressed upon you, your responsibility to follow and engage in politics. My mother did the same for me. As early as the age of 10, she and I would stay up into the late hours watching conventions and election results. We watched the Watergate hearings together, and she would take the time to explain to me the subtleties of the testimony. She gave me the gift of politics. She also taught me how to bake. I sometimes wonder what she would think of today's politics. I think you know what she would think. And unlike, I mean, I often think that I'm glad in many ways my dad is not here to see this. It would break his heart. Ray writes, Lynn, my, doesn't our side love to feel intellectually superior to the other side? Yes, we do. Marx is wrong about the present-day class struggle. It isn't economic class anymore. It's intellectual class struggle. Well, so we are being told, yeah? I'm not sure that that's as clean, um, uh, well, I'll stop talking back to you and let you talk. No one likes to be called stupid. That's right. Even stupid people don't like to be called stupid. Poor can be fixed, but stupid feels hopeless. Let's simplify instead of belittling. I'm disgusted by our side but mercifully not as much as I hate Trump. Oh, man, that puts you in a miserable state, doesn't it? Look, I understand, and I do cringe at our uh, smugness and our, you know, but I am not, what, I we are supposed to apologize for being, what, literate and, uh, educated and valuing knowledge i'm supposed to coddle people who just without who, who i understand what you're saying and catch more flies with honey <laughs> but look at how they've dragged us down where science is something that's scoffed at, where knowledge is something that only, like, elites have, that the real people are uneducated and proud of it? What a... What an empty... Empty, hollow, horrible country, if that's where we are. I know the other side. I know who they think a real American is. First, a real American is white. A real American is Christian. A real American is not educated and speaks like I do and uses big words. A real American is a simple soul who goes to work and feeds his family and pays taxes. Yeah. Yeah. These mythologies... I don't know how we're supposed to, what, those of us who are educated, I am supposed, it, it's like g girls hiding that they're uh, smart because guys don't like smart girls. Is that what we have to do? We have to like, as you say, dumb down so we can talk to the people who are dumb. I don't know. This whole new thing that why they hate us, they hate us because we look down on them. 
I, what got us into where we were looking down? It makes it seem like they're victims. Why would I, because I'm a good soul, why would I look down on somebody? Have they given me reason? Have they said two plus two isn't four? Have they said Donald Trump is a great American when he is the greatest threat to America in my lifetime? What did they do to make me look down at them? Because they are not playing the victim with me anymore. I'm sick of the whining. I really am. We got a whiner in chief. These are people who think white people are under attack. These are people who think Christianity is under attack in the most friggin' Christian nation on earth. Or what passes for Christian. This white Christianity of theirs, believe me, Jesus would puke. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, I'm going to go back to the... (laughs) Sorry. I'm sorry. Ray, you set me off, buddy. Um, Amy, do I have a caller? I'm I'm confused. Uh... Ed writes, just a thought, but did you expect in your wildest dreams that so many Americans would be so susceptible to and believing in all of this stuff? Like QAnon. I mean, really. I, they are a danger. They are a danger, like the president they support. Their willful, celebrated ignorance is a clear and present danger. Their fear and victimhood and hate is a clear and present danger. Their selfishness and incuriousness weakens this nation and has weakened this nation. I'm supposed to play nice while they buy more guns. And keep sensible gun control from happening. I'm supposed to play nice while they destroy the public schools. And the very idea, the concept of public education. I'm not supposed to get on my high horse and look down my nose at them. Because it makes them mad. And when they get mad... They want to tear the whole country down. That we see. You often look at Trump as this petulant child. Well, that's how I look at his supporters. They have the emotional intelligence of a three-year-old. And I, somehow, am responsible Give me a break. Caller, if you're still there and dare to venture out, come on in. I mean, venture in, then come on in. (laughs) Hello, Lynn. Hello. (laughs) 
Hello. Walk in, sign in, please. <laughs> yeah. Hey, before I get started, while I called, I'm just wondering, anybody else out there, whenever um, I'm watching you on YouTube, I get this high pitched sound in the background whenever you're not talking. Hmm. It's like, ee. Well, that's not very good. annoying. Very annoying. Very annoying. Oh, well, thanks for the information. Anybody else? I, that would be helpful if I know that that's what other people are getting. When am I yeah, not this- talking? Like right now. <laughs> okay, I'll okay, keep talking. Anyway. Okay. I thought, hey, what's worse? Wait a minute, though. Really, seriously. What's worse, a high-pitched sound or me talking? A high-pitched sound, honey. Oh, really? Well, that's good. Some people yeah, would very beg annoying. to differ. Okay. Well, if anybody else is getting that, call in and let her know. Yes. Okay, the re- reason I called that, did you by any chance see Obama's speech in Philadelphia yesterday? No, just a little snippet. Oh, you got to watch it. It's good, huh? I just watched. I just watched it earlier on CNN on YouTube. You got to watch it, Lynn. If you want to feel better, check out this speech. He lights into Trump like crazy. I have read what he said, and it's wonderful. But you got to see him deliver it because. And okay. in the, meanwhile, I don't know. Philadelphia, I don't know where he was at, but uh, I guess Philly. people in the background, yeah, but I mean, in the background, people in their cars, they get beeping their horn. Every time you said something about Trump, you all of a sudden, beep, 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 beep. I know. <laughs> oh, God, 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 help us. Anyway, it'll well, make you, know you feel better. Okay, yeah, okay. Well, thank you. God knows we all need yeah. to feel better. I appreciate it's very it. Inspiring. Very inspiring. Okay. okay. Thanks. So I just want to ask. I just want to ask you a question. Um, what state is known for their potatoes? Idaho. Who the hell? <laughs> Get it? <laughs> Enjoy your weekend, honey. You too. What? Goodbye. Oh, Jesus. Bye. He got a new phone. Um, oh, dear Lord in heaven. Uh, okay, so, uh, uh, mentioned the, uh, 545 children, apparently, that we kidnapped. Um, we kidnapped! Didn't mean to scream at you. Um, and, oh, geez, it's years later now. We just can't find their parents. Oh, this is a crime against humanity, guys. Try not to get your head around 534 children, 45. Oh, what? it's a number, a number. Think of one. Think of a child. Think of a child you know. Think of a five-year-old, four-year-old, eight-year-old child you know that you love. Just think of that one. And then imagine that your government separated that child from his or her parents and stuck him in a prison, in a cage. Imagine the damage forever to that child. Imagine the pain. Imagine the emotional trauma. Editorial Washington Post today, the Trump administration's immorality, cruelty, and bureaucratic malpractice in tearing toddlers away from their parents was the work of many co-conspirators, and most of them faithfully carrying out the wishes of the president himself. They go on to delineate how this happened and It is 
a national shame. For all intents and purposes, these children were kidnapped by the U.S. government. And you know, it is not the U.S. government that is now trying to reunite these kids. They haven't. The ACLU is doing it, a non-governmental organization. The courts put the ACLU in charge because they knew damn well. Why would you ask the Trump administration to do, to fix this horror that they had created? You would trust them to do it? We now know, this was done under Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and we now know they specifically did it because they wanted to inflict such emotional trauma on these families that it would dissuade others from coming. I guess we should be grateful. It's not like they, like, lined them, stuck them in cattle cars, and then lined them up and gassed them. At least they didn't do that. Basic human decency, unknown, not a part of the picture. This is our country. It's on us. It's on us. Those of us wonky enough to pay attention. Ansel writes, I came across the opportunity to speak with a couple of 18-year-olds who are voting in their first election. And as we talked, I came to realize that these young people think the last four years are normal. Oh, God. They were 14 when Trump was elected. They didn't experience the Obama years. They were too young. There is no other administration to which they can compare the last four years. These young adults, this is politics. This is how it works. They don't see it as abnormal. And these two 18-year-olds were both voting for Trump because their parents were voting for Trump. Yeah. Well... I think I have a caller. Hello? Hello? Hello, it's Dave from Washington. Dave, how are you? I'm doing all right. Actually, I'm a little sick today, which is why I'm not at work. Uh, oh, dear. Right. They're, not putting them in, they're not putting them in cattle cars and gassing them, but what they are doing is they are involuntarily sterilizing quite a few of them. Yeah. I assume you read about that? Yes, yes, yes. Yep. So that's uh, you know that's one step closer to all of that. Yeah. Um, I agree with you one thousand percent. I am sick and tired of debating with these people. I no longer debate them. I berate them. I have gotten in face to face, spittle flying, screaming and yelling at each other at the bar. You're an idiot. You're a fucking idiot. I cannot put up with them anymore. They'll say something stupid. You correct them. With facts and, and figures and all this sort of stuff. And then the next day they come back and they throw the exact same stupid thing at you. And no matter how many times you say, no, that's not what happened. This is what happened. If you remember, right. and I know you, you must because you were alive when this happened and this is what happened. If you think about it, and they refuse to accept it. So they're not arguing from or they're not debating from a point of you know intellectual 
standing. It is a cult. This is what they believe. Yes, it's absolute pure nonsense, but it's a cult, and they accept it because this is what you have to do if you're part of this cult. We love Trump. They have taken reality TV. Instead of trying to put reality on TV, they're trying to take TV and make it reality with Trump. So to them, it's all just a big TV show. It's just a game, and the point is to win. And if Trump wants to kill all the puppies, as long as he does it, they win. Yay! Who cannot? Yay, Trump won. We won. We killed all the puppies. Um, It doesn't matter what it is. Uh, There's no moral bearing. Um, There's certainly no shame, no decency at all. The children, the 545 children, yeah, well, you know what? Their parents shouldn't have brought them here. It's their parents' fault. Yeah. Put it on, you know, make this 10 years ago with Obama. And, of course, we all know what they would have done. They would have all shit themselves and would still be in the same sort of Well, as Obama said yesterday, can you imagine if while he was president and came out, he had a bank account in China? Yeah, the Beijing Barry. (laughs) He said they'd be calling me Beijing Barry. Yeah. But they don't care. They don't care. No, and uh, no, you're right. They're totally incapable and unwilling to have a discussion based on reality. Their minds are closed, locked, and you shouldn't waste your energy spittle screaming at them because it's just it just your blood pressure goes up and you you hurt yourself and you don't get anywhere. I am offended when some idiot is sitting there and thinks that they are intellectual equal, frankly, to me. And I'm not that brilliant. I'm not that freaking smart. But I know the difference between reality and and just total bullshit. And don't sit there and try to act like maybe you're even superior to me because you can so easily laugh off as just being, oh, you're just some snowflake. Oh, you know what? I'm so glad we could say this on your show. Fuck you and everybody who thinks just like you. I'm sorry. I, see, I'm getting all worked up just thinking about it. I understand. I got a little worked up earlier myself. So, yeah, I just – it's um, – I don't know. It's all and it's not, not good. It's not going to end when he's off the – No, 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 no. Of course not. That Biden needs to um, initiate a uh, presidential crimes commission. Uh, and he said he's not going. He's not going to do what Obama did. He's not going to sweep the, all the stuff under the rug and say we need to look forward. We're not going to look back at the previous administration and any crimes they committed. That's what Obama did. I wish Obama had gone after Bush a little more. Certainly gone after Cheney. But you know, again, that was a long time ago. Biden has said he's not going to sweep this all under the rug. He is going to go back. He is going to make people go back, and because there's this crime left and right that we cannot ignore. And, uh, oh, God. Yeah, no, we'll be told we need to play nice that we do. I don't know. I don't know what the right thing is to do. But these crooks, grifters, criminals, and dis- these destroyers of America yeah. need to be held accountable. And then they say that we hate America. Oh, <laughs> Jesus, God. Okay. All right, I got to go before I have a I, I bust a blood vessel or something. I know. <laughs> Goodbye. Be well. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Oh, dear. Margaret writes, the Pope kicked ass yesterday. That's it. A... <laughs> I'm sorry. There's nothing funny about that. <laughs> uh as popes go, this guy's a good one, but, uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah. He freaked an awful lot of Catholics out. You know, I thought Catholics were supposed to defer to the pope, and you can see them, uh, you know, like, what? What? <laughs> we only defer to right-wing fascist popes. Oh. Uh, Um, Bree from Malaysia sends us this. He's looking at news from around the world. Global News Canada, here's a um, piece they're running. Trump can still win the U.S. election despite lagging in the polls, according to experts. Yeah, I'm seeing those stories too. And yeah, I suppose, I suppose, 
uh, how can we discount such a thing? When, if you recall exactly four years ago at this time, we were already popping champagne, right? Right. How many times do you have to, oh, we're so smart? <laughs> yeah, it ain't over. It ain't over till it's over. And I'm seeing a lot of those stories, too. Now, part of that, it, you know, the cynic in me tells me that's just media trying to create and continue to create a narrative, a story, making it more exciting. Bree says this comes from Investors Business Daily. Trump versus Biden suddenly looks like 2016. Uh-huh. And here's the Daily Mail. Polster, who predicted 2016, says Donald Trump is on track to win again, thanks to hidden support. Well, I do agree that there are people who do vote for him, but know it's uh, something that people who, for some reason, they want to – they want – whose respect they want or something, uh, that they don't own up to it. So, yeah, you can expect an, a, when asked by a pollster, some are unwilling to say Trump. I think that's true. Let us remember how the sliver he won by, those three states, us, Michigan, Wisconsin, few thousand voters here, a few thousand voters there. And that was before the American people saw him as a president. He's running now not with some promise. He's running with a past, a history. And if this country does reelect him, then this country is, well, it's gone. Knowing him. Little Tony says, Lynn, yesterday I was imagining just that thing. I was imagining a little boy and was taken from my mom and dad who loved me the way the way they did. Yeah, that's the way you always have to think of these things. You know, when you get these numbers coming at us, this many people, this many killed. Numbers don't impact at all. Always take it down to one. And then after you've taken it down to one and ingested all that pain and horror, imagine two. Imagine 200. Imagine the rippling effect of the pain and horror. Because big numbers have no impact. It's why 220,000 dead. No impact, clearly, on most people. It's just a number now. Back to little Tony. He was imagining being that child. It would have destroyed me. My parents are both gone now, and I remember them every day with love. What would life have been like from that moment for these children? And what will it be like for them? that my country did this makes my heart break. Nobody should be treated like this, especially children. Amazing that you even have to like say that, right? Amazing that nobody sitting in that room at the Department of Justice with Jeff Sessions said that amazing I wanted to before we run out of time get to something that is not 
Oh, by the way, I finally found, remember the baby shampoo and Listerine thing we or, or you know, mouthwash thing we got from the caller yesterday? Penn State, they found something amazing and that, like, Listerine can kill, you know, and I said, hey, who haven't heard it, but, like, hold your horses. Well, I did come upon a piece today just so, you know, um, and, uh, the headline is, no, mouthwash will not save you from the coronavirus. That's on the, in the New York Times today, if you care. And it is, uh, it is something, uh, the, it's from a scientific paper out of Penn State, um, which shows that, like, you know, you put mouthwash in your mouth and swiggle it around for, like, apparently two minutes or something, you will kill a lot of viruses. Without a doubt. But that, that is not going to kill the coronavirus, and it ain't going to save you, okay? But I wanted to get this in, because I found it, I don't know, Damon Young, I'm sure you know him. He's been a guest on this show. He is a Pittsburgh writer. He is a influencer. He was the founder of a online blog called Very Smart Brothers, which was then uh, bought up by The Root, which is a and Damon Damon has been in the New York Times, this and that. He's written the book. Uh, what? Uh, what's his book's title? Um, what won't kill you makes you blacker. Is that what it is? Damon um, lives on the north side with his uh, wife and two kids. He's a hell of a writer, and he's he's angry. He there's an anger in Damon that is so plays out on his face in the way he holds his body. It's always made me very nervous around him because the hate and the rage is directed at white people. There is no doubt about it. He's very clear about it. And I just want to alert you, and I'm not saying he's not, you know, I, I mean, it's his right. Not like he doesn't have reason. Um, but he's written uh, a lacerating piece in Esquire magazine, and it rips Pittsburgh apart for its racism. The um, he talks about Pittsburgh. Always getting these most livable city, always you know people saying, "Yeah, it's amazing, it's wonderful," and uh, he says, "Yeah, right. If you're white, right." And he says, "If you're a black, especially a black woman, it's one of the worst cities in America." And he, this is a, a love letter to his mother. Who died, and boy, I think in many ways he feel Pittsburgh feels Pittsburgh killed her. Um, I want to. He points out that um, there's always reports coming out in which Pittsburgh owns up to the fact that, like, ooh, apparently things aren't real great here for black people. And he points to uh, the city report that came out from the Gender Equity Commission just last year, which actually said this, arguably the most unlivable city in the country for black women. Black women in Pittsburgh are more likely to die from cancer, cardiovascular disease, drug overdose, homicide, suicide than black women virtually anywhere else in this country. 
They're more likely to have their pregnancies end in fetal death, more likely to give birth to underweight babies, more likely to live in poverty, more likely to be unemployed, more likely to have the police called on them. They earn 54 cents for every dollar a white man earns. The health disparities are particularly brutal, considering that UPMC is the largest non-governmental employer in the state of Pennsylvania, that UPMC Presby Shadyside ranks as one of the best hospitals in the country, and Children's ranks as one of the best in the world. There are few better places on earth to be sick than in Pittsburgh, and few worse places to be sick if you're a black woman. This is what people are going to be reading about us, and he goes on. I'm just going to share a little more with you because I read it this morning, and it was like getting socked in the gut. He talks about the answer to all of why this is. He says, can be found between Center and Bedford Avenues, where the Civic Arena, the world's first major sports venue with a retractable roof, was built in 1961. Which is also where, in the mid-50s, the city used eminent domain to displace hundreds of businesses and thousands of residents from the predominantly black Lower Hill. Whether the 1,800 families had somewhere to go and sit and live and breathe didn't matter. They just had to get the fuck out. That same arena was raised a few years ago, and now it's a 2,800-space parking lot for the Pittsburgh Penguins. And he says, uh, this disparity... This being such a great place for the likes of me and such a friggin' hellhole if you're black. He says, look at East Liberty. He says, where my parents raised our family, a neighborhood that has changed so much in the last 20 years, demographically, culturally, economically, that it's like a gentrification meteor crashed and demolished everything underneath it so white people could start afresh. And he says, while Pittsburgh has owned up to these disparities, it has never admitted and will never admit its intent. These things just happen over time, the city tells itself. Like, you know, how a yard might tell itself that weeds just uh, grow. And it's this lie that allows Pittsburgh to smile at itself in the mirror and that drives its black citizens mad. Because Pittsburgh's livability for white people is possible because of what makes it unlivable for black people. There is no abundance without a permanent underclass. Black blood sustains it. Black bodies undergird it. He goes on to say, what do you do when a city you love kills a woman you loved? The obvious answer is leave. But I bought a house here two years ago. My wife and I are raising our children here. Dad is still here. My memories of Kennywood, Eaton Park, Midnight Buffets, first haircut at Wade's, last dunk on the low hoop at the Stein. Imagine he's thinking Reisenstein. And Mom, besides, where would I go? That's Damon Young, author of What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker, contributing uh, opinion writer for the New York Times and 
countless other publications. And someone who's chosen to stay here, strangely, when his rage against the white establishment and white people here is palpable. I'm way over, aren't I? I am. I'm sorry if you're left hanging, if you didn't get in. I'm sorry. Um, I didn't get half my stuff in either, come to think of it. Okay, guys, I don't even know if I'm going to watch the debate tonight because I don't have to. <laughs> and it won't make any difference. And um, I hope you all have a, a, a good weekend. And um, I'll be back on Monday, the beginning of the last week before the election. Be well. Be safe. Thank you. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.